glad you are here on uh, Resurrection Sunday. And uh, I thought since it's Easter, it only happens once a year, uh, maybe we'll take a little vote here. How many will uh, vote to give Pastor Ron an extra 10 minutes this morning? Can, can I see your hand? There's a few hands there. Um, I don't know if I'd, I might lose that vote. I do notice, I do notice, Alan, after the special music, people clap, but after the sermon, there's no clapping, so I don't know why that is, but uh, uh, so, so glad you're here. Uh, important to be here, important for your kids and grandkids to be here, so very important for us to uh, let our kids and grandkids know what the true meaning of this day is all about. And I like, uh, I like the candy, I like the Easter egg hunts. Actually, I think the Easter bunny is a little intimidating and weird and scary, the six-foot bunny. Um, I think a lot of kids think that's weird, too, when they're young. Um, but uh, it's important to know, for all of us, but to pass on to the next generation what Easter is all about. So uh, here's a little article. What do children know about Easter? When asked about what Easter is all about, an eight-year-old girl responded, you get eggs and remember God. Not, not too bad. A four-year-old exclaimed, it's the day that God woke up. A seven-year-old captured it well when she said, it's when Jesus got alive. But here's my favorite one. A grandfather who was kind of very proud of how much his granddaughter knew about Easter. So he asked his four-year-old granddaughter, uh, put her on her lap and asked, why do we celebrate Easter? Without hesitating, she said, Jesus was crucified, and he died, and his body was put into a grave, and they rolled a big stone in front of the opening, and a bunch of soldiers guarded the tomb. On the third day, there was a big earthquake, and the stone rolled away. Grandpa was so pleased how much his granddaughter knew about the Easter story, but then she continued, and when the earthquake happened, the entire town went to the tomb, and if Jesus came out and saw his shadow, they knew there would be six more weeks of winter. Well, she got most of the story right. We just have to work on the, the ending part there a little, a little bit. But, uh, so hey, uh, the last six weeks we've been on a, a journey with Jesus. And so what we've been looking at is the last week of Jesus' life. What, what was it like? What was he experiencing? And so just kind of by way of a, a, a quick review, we discovered from John chapter 11 that it was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead one of his seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John, that is what set the wheels in motion for the religious leaders to kill Jesus. And so after Lazarus was raised, it says, the religious leaders looked from that day on how they could kill Jesus. And so we see Jesus and his disciples going 20 miles north to a city and kind of hanging out for a while. But then on um, Saturday, the Saturday before uh, the week before the crucifixion, there was someone by the name of Simon the leper that had a, a party in Jesus' honor. And we said if Jesus' purpose was to preserve his own life, he never would have gone to that party because it was down near Bethany by Jerusalem where the religious leaders were looking to kill him. But he went to that party with his disciples, and they had a big dinner in his honor, and something significant happened. Uh, Mary uh, takes uh, some very costly perfume. It's called spikenard. It comes from India. It was worth a year's salary. And she breaks that box of, of perfume open and she anoints the feet of Jesus and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And the disciples are furious. That could have been stolen or sold and, and given to the poor. And uh, we learned a lesson on costly worship. 
Well, the very next uh, part of the story then on Saturday was uh, uh, Palm Sunday. We looked at John chapter 12, where Jesus enters uh, the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. A fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that said, Your king will come into the city on a donkey. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on that donkey. And there are crowds of people that line the streets on his way into Jerusalem. They're taking their coats off and making like a red carpet entryway. They're waving palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, praise to the king, the king of, 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 of the highest. And the religious leaders are furious. And they tell Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, if they don't praise me, I'm going to make these stones cry out and praise me. And then we discovered that as Jesus got into Jerusalem and closer to Jerusalem, he's weeping. He's crying. It's one of three times in the New Testament we hear and read about Jesus crying. Why is he crying? He's crying because the city of Jerusalem has rejected him. He's crying also because he knows in about 35 years, uh, the Roman uh, soldiers will come under the emperor Titus and they will destroy the city of Jerusalem. And hundreds of thousands of people that live in Jerusalem will lose their lives. And Jesus is weeping. Well, then we looked at John chapter 13. This was Thursday, Monday, Thursday. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's Passover, four shocking events. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And by the way, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And the disciples are left puzzled and and reeling emotionally in every other way. Uh, And then we looked at John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. What was Jesus thinking about before he went to the cross? Well, read John 17, it'll tell us. He prays for himself. I pray that I will be glorified so that I can glorify you. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for you. He says, I pray for all those who will will believe, future, on my message through you, that they might be one, that you might experience unity. Well, then last week we looked at uh, the crucifixion and the cross, and of course that brings us to uh, this morning. And I'm going to give a long introduction, and then we're going to get eventually to John chapter 20, and uh, look at the empty tomb, but I call this good news from the graveyard. Good news from the graveyard, and of course we know what that good news is. So let me tell you today, people in our world and culture today are looking for good news. They're actually hungry for good news. Um, You know, you you watch the news today, and and if you watch uh, any kind of news, uh, 95% of it is bad, and uh, not very edifying, but people today are starving for good news. I thought I'd work in a story about our granddaughter this morning. Um, just, just to illustrate that story, and forgive me for telling it again, but, um, so, but it really illustrates the point that people are starving for good news. So many of you know that um, we haven't had a girl born in our direct family line for 138 years so uh, three weeks ago, our youngest son and his wife um, had uh, Audrey Marie Clark. And uh, so uh, someday soon we're going to bring her here and have her dedicated. But um, because my dad did our genealogy, we knew that that was the first girl born in our direct family line, our son's family line, 138 years. 
Uh, Grand Rapids News Station picked that up, WZZM, and did a nice interview last uh, weekend and it aired on local television last uh, Sunday night. And we watched that. And it was a beautiful story. Tuesday morning, my son calls me and says, we just got a voicemail from um, ABC News in New York. And they saw that story on the, the Grand Rapids station, and they're asking permission if uh, if we can share that story with every news outlet and ABC news outlet in the whole country. And they said they said yes. Yeah. So this news story goes out, and then from there it goes crazy. Uh, People magazine, um, Inside Edition uh, interview last Friday. Uh, Good Morning America third hour on Tuesday, uh, and then I, I went online and international newspapers picked this up. England, India. Why is that? Because people love a story that is a story of good news. And this morning, that's what this passage is all about. It's about the best news, the good news, that the grave is empty, the tomb is empty. It's really the linchpin of of Christianity. Uh, Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He builds a case. Uh, How come some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? That was the the Sadducees. There was a, a, a sect, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the life life after. They did not believe in the resurrection. And so Paul builds this argument like, man, if there's no resurrection, man, we're, we're in trouble. We're liars. We're false witnesses. Um, we have no hope. We're still in our sins. We're in bad shape. But he says, but there is a resurrection. Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And then he writes about the ramifications of that. And so... Uh, just for a moment, uh, 10 minutes before we get to John chapter 20, why is this so important? Uh, some people say, well, theology is boring. It, it sometimes can be boring, but not when you relate the truth of the Bible to life. And the reason this day is so important, the reason the resurrection is so important, is because of the reality that unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, every one of us will die. Death and taxes. April 15th coming up in less, less than a week, two things we can't avoid. We're reminded of this all through Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3, 2, There is a time to be born, and there is a time to die. Moses writes about it in Psalm 90, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die. There's an epitaph on a headstone in a cemetery in Indiana, and I, I quote this epitaph almost every funeral service that I do, And if you go and find that headstone, here's what it says. Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Well, that's uh, that's the reality, that we're all going to die. And uh, the story says that somebody um, came by and read that epitaph, and they took out a little sticky note and left the note on that headstone and it said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. And um, 
that's good advice too. That's good advice as well. Well, here's why the resurrection is so vitally important. Number one, it's essential to the gospel. Without, without the resurrection, there's no gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, what is, the resur- what is the gospel? It's what the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is, is what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says. And so I would venture to guess that probably every one of us here has attended a funeral. Maybe you've been to a graveside. And uh, that's when we begin to realize the, the, the reality of our own uh, mortality. In my 67 trips around the sun, I have attended or presided at, I'm trying to guess, 150, 200 funerals. I have dozens and dozens and dozens of times been with a family at the gravesite, and they're saying goodbye to their loved one. There's usually a tent at the cemetery, and there's um, six or seven chairs, the caskets here over the gravesite. We're under a tent. There's six or seven chairs for family that's lined up right in the front there. And then usually a smaller crowd that's been at the funeral comes and gathers around that gravesite. It's really just kind of a, a brief time. It's called a committal service. We're committing this person's body to the ground. You say a few words of, of comfort to the family. You read some scripture and you pray. And there's kind of a standard uh, saying that most pastors will say after that prayer to close that service. Here's what it is. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God to take out of this world the soul of, you say the, the person's name, we commit their body to the ground, looking for and waiting for the resurrection of the last day, at which time those who have died in Christ will be raised and will be given a body like his glorious body, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Ah, there's the significance of the resurrection. That the gravesite, often referred to as their final resting place for a believer, it's, it's a temporary resting place. It's temporary until someday uh, the trumpet sounds, First Thessalonians 4, and there's a return of Christ, and then there's um, the, the, the dead shall rise first, and then there's a rapture and a reunion, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The good news is that death does not have the final word because Jesus has conquered the grave, he's conquered sin, and he's conquered death. That was the Apostle Peter's message on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He's, he's preaching to thousands of people um, in Jerusalem, and it's just a few weeks after the, the resurrection of Jesus Here's what he says. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. And so Paul writes, Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's that's the hope that we we have. Well, that was all introduction to to John chapter 20. So if you want to take your Bibles to John chapter 20, um, we're just going to look real quickly at the the, uh, the resurrection day story, and then we're going to think about four um, 
application truths, life lessons from, from John chapter 20, and hopefully the plane lands at about 11.15. So that's, that's what we're shooting for. Let's look at John chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, so it's Sunday morning. It's early. The, the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew writes, it's, it's at dawn. And so, um, you know, you can figure out anything on the internet these days. So I, I, I googled, what time does the sun rise in Jerusalem on April 9th? Just around Easter time. So 619 is what I discovered. So, so somewhere, you know, somewhere between like 615, 620 in the morning. And it says, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and, the other gospel writers say that it wasn't just Mary. There was other women that were with her. And we see that a shocking discovery when she gets to the tomb on that Sunday morning. It says the stone had been removed from the entrance. Uh, they sealed that grave and there was a, a large stone with a raised several tons and it was in a groove that uh, would have kind of come down and, and, and covered the um, the entrance of that tomb, and Mary was shocked that the stone was moved. She had been there with others watching when they put Jesus in that grave from a distance. She saw them seal that tomb, and now the the stone has been moved away. Matthew says in his account, an angel of the Lord came down and rolled the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let other people in. And so we look at uh, Mary's speculation, verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself. Uh, So what do you do with shocking news, surprising news? You want to share it with somebody, don't you? And so Mary's trying to process all this and says she runs to to tell Peter and to tell John. and, And we know this story that she tells them that, uh, well, let's just read the, read verse uh, 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So her speculation is somebody has come in and, what, stolen the body of Jesus. And, and she is in kind of panic mode, not knowing what happened. Now, we have 2,000 years of history, and we have uh, the Gospels that tell us exactly what happened. These people are dealing with these events in real time. And so what Peter and, and John run to the tomb, and uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, verse 4, John says, both were running, the other disciple outran Peter. And I don't know why John had to record that, but he says, <laughs> I won, I won. Uh, men are competitive, right? So he says, oh, yeah, we ran, and I, I outran Peter. And, and they get there, and uh, it says that, uh, John bends over and looks in. He doesn't go in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. What does Peter do? We know a little bit about Peter's personality. He just goes right into the tomb, and he discovers that there, there's not a body there. There's the linen strips. There's the, the cloth laid there that was covering Jesus' face. There's no body. This is finally verse 8. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first. There he says it again also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, what did he believe? He believed that the tomb was empty, but he didn't really understand the resurrection. And, and John inserts this in verse 9. They still 
did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Even though he told them like three or four times, they just didn't get it. So they believe, he believed the tomb was empty, but he didn't know about the resurrection. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Well, what does Mary do? That leads us to um, part three here, the surprise encounter with the risen Christ. Peter and John go back. Mary stays at the tomb. And look at what the text has to say. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, literally the the Greek word means she's wailing. I mean, she is just wailing and and crying in tears because because she can't find Jesus. She thinks he's been stolen as she wept, she bent over and looked, uh, to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the, <coughs> excuse me, the gardener. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her one word, Mary. And, and, and Mary recognized her voice, his voice. And she knew then who this was. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary has this personal encounter with Jesus. This is amazing because if you were to write the resurrection story, especially in the first century culture of the day, you would not have women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Women were, were, were unfortunately looked down upon in that day. Their testimony in court was not valid because you were a woman. And so the fact that Jesus appeared to a woman, Mary Magdalene first, is tremendously significant. And guess what? The disciples, they, they, didn't, they didn't even believe Mary's message until Sunday night. And let's look at... Uh, the last part of the text here, beginning in verse 19. The sudden appearance of the risen Christ on Sunday night. Here it is, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week. So Jesus rose again that morning. This is Sunday night. Where are the disciples? Well, they're together. There's, there's 10 of them, we discovered. Thomas is not there. Judas has already left. With the doors locked. They're on lockdown. They're in this room, and the doors are locked. Why? For fear of the Jewish leaders. So what are they thinking? Probably what we've been thinking. They came and uh, crucified our leader, and we're his close followers. They're coming for us next. And so they are confused. They're scared. I mean, the religious leaders, after uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, said, not only are we going to kill Jesus, but we're going to look to kill Lazarus and silence him. 
because he's talking about what happened. So they think that the Jewish religious leaders are coming after them. And what happens? All of a sudden, Jesus shows up. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, normal Jewish greeting. After he said this, he showed them his hands, nail prints. He showed them his side, where the spear went in. And it says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now they believe because they, they've seen. We're going to probably look at, at Thomas tomorrow, known as Doubting Thomas, but the disciples really didn't believe until they saw Jesus firsthand. And Thomas said, I have to see for myself. And so it says now the disciples' grief turns to joy. This is what Jesus had told them three days earlier in the upper room. John chapter 16, Jesus said, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And that's what's happening. Three days later, he shows up and he says, I'm here. I am alive. Well, this morning, um, we celebrate the empty tomb, and I, I want us to just think quickly about four life lessons that we can think about from this story here in, in John chapter 20 and uh, the empty tomb. So here's, here's the first one uh, from John chapter 20 and the resurrection story. It's, it's to understand the trustworthiness and the reliability of this book, the Bible. I don't know what your source of truth is. Everybody in this world has a source of truth. Um, but the only absolute authoritative source of truth is found in this book. John 17, 17 says, thy word is truth. Titus 1, 2 says, God cannot lie. And so uh, some people's source of truth is, is, is the news. You go to the news and watch the news. And I've discovered this many times. Um, if you watch two different national news channels, and I'll just go ahead and say on many stories, I've watched Fox News coverage, and then I turn over to CNN news coverage, and I watch them, and I'm saying, are they talking about the same story? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even sound like they're, they're talking about the same truth, the same story. Uh, because there's a liberal slant, there's a conservative slant. So how do you, how do you know what's reliable? How do you know what's true? Is it, is it your, what your professor says? Is it what your friends think? Are, are you your own source of truth? Well, I think, I believe. No, th this is the source of truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, it's fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? Uh, Psalm chapter 16. Verses 9 and 10, a thousand years before the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, here's what David wrote. You will not let your faithful one, other translations say holy one, you will not let your holy one see decay. What's that mean? That, that Jesus, the holy one, his body will not decay. Now, you might say, well, how do you know that that was referring to, to Jesus from from Psalm chapter 16, and uh, the answer to that question is when you go to Acts chapter 2, and Peter's preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, in Acts chapter 2 in that Pentecost sermon, 
He talks about Jesus rising from the dead, and then he quotes Psalm chapter 16, because this is what David said about him, that the Holy One would not see decay. And all through the, the, the Gospels, uh, Jesus himself uh, talked about it, didn't he? Um, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, it'll arise, raise it up again. And the religious leaders are laughing at him because they think he's talking about the actual physical temple. And they said, this temple took 46 years to build. And Jesus said, no, I'm talking about the temple of my body. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three times, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and then he'll rise again. Over and over again, Jesus talked about his resurrection and it happened in fulfillment of Scripture, the trustworthiness and reliability of the Bible. Matthew 5.18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Every word in this book will come to pass. Well, secondly, a life lesson is this. Everyone needs a personal encounter with the risen Christ. Everyone needs a personal encounter with the risen Christ. So Jesus made about a dozen post-resurrection appearances. Uh, Mary Magdalene was the first one. Uh, they're, they're listed... Uh, uh, in, I believe, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, and Paul says, he appeared to 500 people at once. He appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He, he made do- a dozen post-resurrection appearances uh, where people came face-to-face with the risen Christ. And um, the key question in all, all the Bible, in Matthew chapter 16, after they were in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and, and some say you're a Elijah, and some say you're like Jeremiah or another prophet. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And there's the key question, who is Jesus? And as C.S. Lewis wrote, and Josh McDowell quotes him in Evidence That Demands a Verdict, one of three things, he's either the Lord of all and the Lord... Uh, uh, the savior of the world who he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. And so rationally, you got to put him in one of those three categories uh, because he claimed to be God. And um, he demonstrated it by doing many miracles. And so we each have to come face-to-face with the risen Christ and understand who he is. And then we have to come face-to-face with the fact that without him... uh, we're not having, we're, no one has an entrance ticket to heaven. It's only through the cross and through personally receiving what he did for us on the cross. Here's the good news, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him, on them. You don't want justice from God. Uh, he, Jesus took our, our, our penalty. If, if we were to get what we deserved, we'd all be in a crisis eternity. But he, he, he will have mercy on us and our God and to our God, for he will freely pardon. He will, he will forgive us of our sin. So I hope that you've had that personal encounter with Christ, that you've realized that um, he's the only way 
and you put your faith in him for, for your eternal salvation. Uh, that's the good news of the gospel. Number three, life lesson number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope in a hopeless world. The biblical definition of hope isn't wishful thinking. Uh, the biblical definition of hope is the absolute assurance of something based on the promise of God. And so we, we, we sang about it this morning, didn't we? Be, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, our assurance of our eternal destiny is, is in our life. And so the Bible says, don't put your hope in money. That can go away quickly. Don't put your hope in your own abilities and your intellect and your knowledge. Those are all gifts from God. Don't put your hope in the military strength of America. Don't put your hope in the government. Put your hope in God. First Peter 1 describes it as a living hope, as a living hope. And so uh, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope in a hopeless world. And um, I think the significance of the, the truth of the resurrection and the Easter holiday as we get older just becomes much, much more significant. And Diane and I now have uh, stood at the graveside of all four of our parents and said goodbye. I have a stepmom in a home in Grand Rapids that is probably um, coming to the last few months of her life. And what gives us hope in those moments is the resurrection of Jesus. I still remember, it was two and a half years ago, my, my dad passed away at 91. Um, his funeral was at uh, Calvary Church in Grand Rapids. And um, I remember a couple years before he died, my was visiting my dad, and he pulls me back into his study, and he pulls out this little manila folder, and it was uh, all the instructions for his funeral and his service and the passages that he wanted read and who he wanted to sing. And then he goes, he says, and he was dealing with some dementia. He goes, um, by the way, I want you to be the MC. I'm like, the MC? Okay. Um, but he, he wanted me to preach his funeral. And, um, and so I had the privilege of, of doing that. I remember showing up at the church and their dad in the casket and I really thought I'd kind of be a basket case. It was sad, but I wasn't. I looked at him and said, Dad's not here. This is simply his outer shell. And uh, God, God gives you the grace in, in moments like that. And, and yes, you sorrow, but First Thessalonians 4.13 says, not like those who have no hope because you know there's a a reunion coming someday. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope in a hopeless world. Well, the last life lesson, number four, and this is straight out of the, the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, when Paul kind of closes this crescendo passage about the resurrection and that we have victory in Jesus, he actually gives us like the application of that truth right in the text. And so there's there's three of them. I'll just go over them very quickly. Here it is. Because of the truth of the resurrection, and let me let me just read the verses here. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's now three truths. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. So truth number one, because of the truth of the resurrection, we can stand firm in our faith. We, we know what we believe. 
because the scriptures say it and it's true. And, and uh, so we don't have to wonder. We don't have to, like, uh, I've asked many people about their eternal destiny in heaven. And they said, well, I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to make it. I, ho- I hope I make it. I'm, you know, it's like, no, you can know for sure and you can stand firm based on uh, the resurrection of Jesus. You can stand firm in your faith. Secondly, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And so engage fully in the work of the Lord. Uh, this is called missional living. Rick Warren wrote a book years ago, The Purpose Driven Life. It sold millions and millions of copies be- because uh, it-, it laid out for a believer in Jesus Christ. This is your purpose in life. And uh, and so what, what does Paul say? Hey, we need to be busy working for the Lord, don't we? We need to find our, our, our giftedness and, and we need to seize the moment. And Jesus says, I do the work of my Father. We need to work because the night is coming. Life is short and we need to be involved fully in the work of the Lord with a sense of, of urgency in sharing our giftedness and sharing the gospel with other people. And lastly, the third application, uh, because of the truth of the resurrection, is this. Because of the truth of the resurrection, we know our labor is not futile. What, whatever we do for the Lord is not, like, futile. I, I, hate to, I hate to waste money. I hate to waste time. We all want our, our time and our effort to, to count and to make a difference. And Paul says in this passage, whatever you do for the Lord... It's not in vain. There's a promise in Isaiah 55, 11, says, my word will not return void. And so when you study God's word and, and read it and share it with other people, um, God is doing a work in their heart and life, whether you see it or not. Our labor is not in vain. God is at work. Well, that's the truth of the resurrection, the good news from the graveyard The tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, and we have strength for today and hope for tomorrow. We're going to close with a song that I want to share with you um, by Phil Wickham. It's called The Hymn of Heaven. It was voted the worship song of 2022, and uh, it's about four and a half minutes long. I want you to listen to the words as uh, Phil shares this. There's actually a part... Uh, through this song, and I've listened to it about a half a dozen times this week, uh, about three minutes into the song, it kind of builds a crescendo, and it says, forever he shall reign. And when he gets to that part, um, and I'll, I'll cue it here, uh, we're going to stand up for the last minute and a half and uh, listen to the, the great truth from this song, Hymn of Heaven, and then we'll close with, uh, with prayer. How I long Breathe the air of heaven Where pain is gone And mercy fills the streets To look upon The one who bled to save me And walk with him For all eternity There will be a day When all will bow before Him There will be a day When death will be no more 
Thank you for the truth of uh, the resurrection. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. Lord, I pray especially for some today that are um, hurting and grieving uh, lost loved ones. Lord, um, our prayer is that um, they have the hope of the resurrection and that, Lord, help us not to waste this opportunity if if we've not put our faith in Jesus to uh, receive the wonderful gift of eternal life. Uh, that gives us strength for today, hope for tomorrow, 
And Lord, we look forward to that day when uh, someday we'll all be around your throne and we'll worship you forever and sing these uh, words of praise, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Lord, to fill our hearts with that truth, may it uh, change our lives, may it give us hope for today and hope for tomorrow because the grave is empty and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.